listening to the Retro Sermons Podcast. Find out more at NorthColumbusChristians.com slash Retro Sermons. It would be hard to think of any greater blessing than we have tonight and any greater thing that we could be doing than we're doing tonight. That's to be here and to worship the Lord and to meditate upon His Word. It's good to be back with you. Good to be here for tonight and for the rest of the series of meetings. Appreciate the fact that you have the interest in being here. In the reading that was read in your hearing just a few moments ago, and then in another passage, we are pictured as God's own people, God's own special people. So I'd like to read for you here in Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11 and gives us some of the same ideas that were was contained in the reading that you just heard. In verse 11 it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, purify for himself his own special people, zealous of good works. Speak these things and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Verse 14 uh, of this reading tells us that we are God's special people. In this translation it says his own special people. In your King James translation it says a peculiar people. Uh, and in the case of First Peter, it's peculiar is used there also. And in many of the translations it's uh, translated God's own purchased people. They are his own special people. Christians have no reason to feel like they are nobody. They have no reason whatsoever to feel downcast or underprivileged because in the eyes of God they are somebody. We hear a great deal about self-esteem. And our time we hear a great deal said about how that we need to develop self-esteem. And I even have heard of and of seminars where that was the theme to develop that. Well, in the wrong way, we don't need to develop self-esteem. But in the right way, those of us who are Christians, though we're to be humble and never be arrogant, never feel like that we are above other folks in any way on our own. Yet at the same time, we ought to feel that we are something special. That is, we are God's special people. We are not special on our own, but we are special because what God has made us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are God's special people. We are His peculiar people. That word peculiar doesn't mean, although uh, we are as Christians, are different. 
that word peculiar there doesn't mean necessarily different. It doesn't even mean an oddball. And we sometimes talk about that person, this person is peculiar. You know, everybody's peculiar, but me and thee and thou are a little bit. But uh, that's not the, the point of this uh, passage. The point of this passage is that we belong peculiarly to the Lord. We are His own. We are His own special people. And uh, we talk about such and such a thing is peculiar to that individual. That is His own. That's His own thing. And so we are God's special people because we are peculiar because we are His special people. We are His own purchased possession. Now this language that's used here of Christians was first used in relation to Israel in the long ago. In Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter, and verse six, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, and he's talking about Israel now. Uh, God's chosen people. And God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And then in the 14th chapter, and in verse 2 of Deuteronomy, still talking about Israel and their special relationship to the Lord. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are upon the earth. Then the 26th chapter, and uh, verse 18, still talking about Israel. And today the Lord has proclaimed you to be His special people, just as He promised you that you should keep all of His commandments. Now, in those three cases, this idea of a special people is applied to Israel. They were called a special treasure above all the people of the earth. They were a special people to the Lord. And we, uh, who are familiar with the Old Testament, we sometimes refer to Israel as being God's chosen people, and they were. But now in this dispensation, the same language is applied to us. It's applied to us that we are God's chosen. We are God's special people. And in that last reference in Leviticus, rather than Deuteronomy that I just read, he talks about they were special people to do the commandments, to do all the commandments of the Lord. So they were special to the Lord. They were His own special people. They had a special purpose in, to obey the Lord, and they had a special relationship with Him. Now, we have that special relationship. We have some of those special responsibilities. Now, I'd like for us now to look back to the 14th verse of Titus 2, where we read a few moments ago. And let us notice there some of the con, uh, characteristics of God's people. Some of the characteristics of them that make them special. Make them a very special people. And we need to apply that to each of our lives because we, as Christians, uh, each one of us, we're one of God's own special people. And so we need to understand what it means to be His special people and what some of the characteristics of these special people are. The first one we'll notice here in verse 14 is that we are the Lord's own redeemed people. We are redeemed in verse 14, he says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. The idea of redemption is the idea of being bought back. We, and the idea as it's used in the scriptures is, uses this figure. We 
as sinners, were sold under sin. We were sold into slavery through sin. We, by our sins, we in, in effect sold ourselves out. We sold ourselves out to sin. And he uses that figure in the seventh chapter of Romans. Uh, and he uses the term sold under sin. So we as slaves to sin have sold ourselves as, or someone has said, sold our souls to the devil. We have sold ourselves out to sin, so we're sold under sin. Now, being sold under sin, we were slaves to its practice. We were uh, slaves to its guilt. In fact, in the same Roman letter, in the sixth chapter, that figure is carried further of our slavery to sin in verse 6. It was in, I read in chapter 6. It was in the seventh chapter where he uses the expression sold under sin in the 14th verse. Then back in the sixth chapter, he says in verse 15, What then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know to whom you, to whom you present yourself slaves to obey? You're the slave, one slave whom you obey. Where there's sin leading to death, our obedience leading to righteousness. Now let's notice this. He says, do you not know that to whom you present yourself, slaves, the other translation says servant, slaves to obey. Now, we became slaves, not against our will, but because we presented ourselves to be slaves. So he says, do you not know that to whom you present yourself, slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey. So we have presented ourselves as slaves unto sin. We have sold out to sin. As, as a race, because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But he goes on down. But God be thanked that though you were the serv- servants or slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which delivered you, and have been set free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, Leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Then he goes on and talks about it further. Then he shows that we are subject to the wages of sin, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, here we are. We, as free moral agents, we have presented ourselves unto the devil. We presented ourselves unto sin, as sin has been personified here. We present ourselves as slaves through our disobedience. We have sold out. We are under the uh, domination of sin. We are slaves to its practices. We are slaves to its guilt. We are in a condition whereby that we are in a position to reap the wages of sin, which is death. And that death in this context is not just physical death. It has to do with eternal death because it's used in contrast to eternal life. Now then, that's the position we're in. But, now we've been redeemed. We've been purchased back. Someone has paid the price and bought us back out of that slavery into which we sold ourselves. And having been bought back, we're now a redeemed person. And the price for that redemption is the blood of Jesus Christ. In the book of Colossians, the first chapter, he mentions our being delivered or translated out of the kingdom or the dominion of darkness 
and that we have been translated into the kingdom of his dear son, as one translation says, the, uh, the son of his love. But let's notice in the that first chapter of Colossians verse 13. Well, let's begin with verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So we are special because God has paid through His Son a special price for us. We have been purchased by the very blood of the Lamb. We are bought with a price. In uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20, he says, You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your bodies and your spirit, which are God. Now, whatever privileges we have, whatever blessings we enjoy in Christ, it didn't come cheap. It came as a result of a price, a heavy price, paid by our Lord. He gave his blood. If you'll just stop and think for just a minute. All of the agony that went with the cross. Everything that was done for our salvation. How that he went and endured the terrible ordeal of the trial and the miscarriage of justice that sent him to the cross. Then the agony of the cross as he hung suspended between earth and heaven. As his very life blood was shed. He died the terrible death on the cross, then was taken and buried in the tomb, but raised again the third day for our salvation. But what a terrible price it extracted, the death of the very Son of God, and all the agony and the suffering that went with it. But we were redeemed by that. We've been bought back from the slavery into which we sold ourselves, to which we yielded ourselves, to which we gave ourselves over to. We have been bought back. We are a redeemed people. In fact, the church itself is said to have been bought with the blood of Christ. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, as uh, Paul spoke to the elders of the church of Ephesus, he said that they were to oversee the church of God. But he says, which he has purchased with his own blood. Now, in what sense was is the church purchased? Maybe it's several. But we talk about the church being purchased with blood, but we don't want to forget that it's purchased by blood because each one of us individually were purchased and redeemed by the blood. The church is a collective uh, word, collective noun. It's kind of like the word uh, cubby, and kind of like the word uh, herd. And so the church is made up of individual Christians, just like a cubby is made up of individual birds, and a herd is made up of individual cows. And I could be standing on my back porch, and if I had a herd of cows back over there, I could say, that herd was bought with good money. Well, it doesn't mean necessarily that they were bought collectively, but that they each one was bought, each one of them bought by money. And they collectively then are bought with money. And of course, the church collectively can be said to be bought with the blood of Christ. But individually, each one of us individually, were purchased by the blood of Christ. Therefore, we collectively make up the blood-bought institution and we make up the church. So we have been purchased, each of us, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. We talk about sometimes, and rightly so, what a 
grand privilege is to be a part of a blood-bought institution. Well, what we're saying is really, it's a grand privilege to be bought ourselves, individual, by the precious blood of the Lamb. So we are a redeemed people. We are not what we are because of ourselves. We have no right to boast and to think of ourselves as a special people because of something that we have done and something we've accomplished because we sold out. We sold out to sin. We sold ourselves over as slaves to sin and we're sold under sin. But Jesus, by His precious blood, purchased each one of us individually, put us together collectively as the church, and made us a blood-bought people. We are His own special people. Then also, in this verse, not only are we the Lord's own uh, purchased or redeemed people, we are the Lord's own law-abiding people. Look at the verse further. The, the King James says they might redeem us from all iniquity. This translation and others say they might redeem us from every lawless deed. That word iniquity uh, comes from a word that's translated in the King James and translated here lawless. It comes from a word which simply means without law. Without law. So it is lawlessness. Every lawless deed, he says, we've been uh, redeemed from. Now, that's just another way of saying that we've been redeemed from sin. That we've been purchased back from sin. In fact, uh, in First John chapter 3 and verse 4, he says, the King James translation says, uh, sin is the transgression of the law. This translation says, sin is lawlessness. That's what sin is. Sin is a transgression of the law. Sin is lawlessness. Now, we hear a great deal in our time, and some preachers try to make us believe, that under this dispensation we ought not be too concerned about that because we're not under law. We're not under law in this dispensation. I've even heard people say that we, are, since we're under grace, that we are not under law of any kind. But that won't work, and I'm going to tell you why. Besides what the Bible just says right here. But look at it just from a logical point of view. First of all, we raise the question then, what is sin? Sin is lawlessness. It's a transgression of law. But if we're not under law in this dispensation, there could be no sin in this dispensation. And if there could be no sin in this dispensation, there'd be no reason for grace in this dispensation. So when you destroy law in this dispensation, you also destroy grace in the process. People don't realize that. Because the only reason that we need grace is because of sin. Uh, In fact, in the latter part of Romans chapter 5, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And so, since grace is the remedy for sin, we must be under law in this dispensation. Or there would be no need for grace whatsoever. But in this this passage, he says, we have been redeemed from every lawless deed, from all iniquity. And, but not only have we been redeemed from sin and every lawless deed, we have been redeemed in order that we might practice God's law, in order that we might do His will. And we are under law, in, again, in this dispensation. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 
the Apostle Paul makes this crystal clear, that we are under a law of some kind as we uh, function in this uh, age and time. Look at, beginning with verse 21. For those who are without law, as without law. Now, in this context, the law he's talking about here is the law of Moses. Being without law, as without law. But listen to what he puts in parenthesis. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. So he says, I, I, I behave in a certain way toward those who are without law. That is, those who are not under the law, as he says back up in verse 20. He says, to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win the Jews. And those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Then he hadn't changed the subject. And those who are without law, he's talking about the same law, that is of the law of Moses, the Jews. And those who are without law would be the Gentiles. As as without law, then he goes on, those it said, but not being without law toward God, but under law to Christ. So we are under law to Christ in this dispensation. We have to obey law. And so we have been redeemed from, if we've been redeemed from iniquity or lawless deeds, then the converse of it, we must be redeemed for something. And we must be redeemed in order to practice law. That is to practice God's law. Now, it makes that clear in James 1 and verse 25. Whosoever looks into the perfect law of liberty, there's the word law again, he being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this man should be blessed in his doing. So he looks into what? He looks into the perfect law, and then he will be, if, uh, if, if he forgets not that law. Then, and goes on and remembers that law, he'll be blessed in his doing, or in his practice of law. Now, in Matthew chapter 7, at the judgment, law is going to count. We are under, again, law to Christ, remember. And it, it's going to make a difference whether or not we are lawful. In verse 21 of Matthew 7, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, this translation says. Those who practice lawlessness. The other says iniquity. And remember the word iniquity comes from the word which means without law. So the reason they would be condemned in judgment is because they practice lawlessness. They may say, Lord, Lord, I've done many wonderful works in your name. But they are without law. They're without authority. We'll talk more about authority tomorrow night. But they're without authority. So they are lawlessness. Now, we are a redeemed people. We are special people because we have a special relationship to God's law. We have been redeemed from all lawlessness and we have been redeemed in order to practice law. That is to practice the law of Christ under which we live. And if we don't practice the law of Christ, then of course he points out that we'll be condemned in the judgment. Thirdly, we are God's special and own purified people. This is akin to what we've already said, but I want to make this point. We have been purified, washed, and cleansed. We have become stained and dirtied by sin. And thus now, we are a purified people. First of all, the record of our lives has been purified by our 
redemption. Look at the first, well, the tenth chapter of Hebrews. And he tells us some of the blessings we have under the priesthood of Christ and on the sacrifice that is offered by that priest, that is his, himself. And now let's look, begin with verse 1. For the law, talking about the law of Moses, having a shadow of good things to come and not of the images of those things, can never, with those same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. But then would they have not been, ceased to be offered. For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Therefore he came into this, the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book that is written of me to do thy will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. And he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standing ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, wait until the enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who have been sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I write them. Then he adds, their sin and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offer for sin. Their sins, he says, and their iniquities are their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That just simply says the slate is wiped clean. My life and all the fool things that I've done during my life, I can mark it down that through the blood of Jesus Christ it's wiped clean. And I don't care what it is. As long as that person has obeyed the gospel according to God's will, his past life, all the sins, all that slate is wiped clean. It's remembered no more. It's no more on the record. It's not brought up again next year. It's gone. And it doesn't matter what it is. When one has been baptized into Christ, sincerely so, having met the preconditions of baptism, he can rest assured that whatever he's done is wrong. It's off God's record. It's taken away out of his book of remembrance. Bob Bunny was telling me about some fellow up in Carolinas when he was up there. He came forward one night during the first uh, night of the gospel meeting and wanted to obey the gospel and he Bob baptized and then long about Friday night he came back forward and said he wanted to be baptized again and he told him he said well he said did you not understand that when you were baptized on Monday night he said yes did you not understand that that would take away your sin yes but he said but brother Bunny he said I've been so bad he said I don't think one time will do it well one time will do it all it has to be done is 
when one obeys the gospel of Christ sincerely so, and of course he obeys it, really obeys it, will be sincerely so, it's taken away. So we are a purified people. The record has been made clear, clean. Uh, suppose, just for a minute, suppose that you had a record that long up here at the courthouse of crimes that you have done. And suppose provision made that once you had been redeemed, that once you had uh, repented of those, that somebody would go up and take that page out. Throw it away, burn it, do whatever they want to do with it. It's never there anymore with the record clear. That's how it is. That record's gone. Once you have obeyed the gospel. So the slate's clean. But not only is that so, not only do we have a purified record, we also have a purified life to go with it. In First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 22, he said we're not to be a partaker or a share in other men's sins. But he goes on to say to keep yourself pure. We are a purified people, but we are to keep ourselves pure. Now, as we point out this morning, we are going to sin from time to time. But we keep ourselves pure in two ways. We keep ourselves pure first by abstaining from sin, by avoiding it, doing all that we can to do so. And when we slip into it, we repent of it, turn from it, ask the Lord's forgiveness, confess it, and it's wiped out. So we keep ourselves pure in that way. But we are to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. James 1 verse 27, pure religion undefiled for God and the Father is this, the business of the Father is the widows in their affliction. Keep oneself unspotted from the world. Notice what he says there. He doesn't say to just keep yourself from becoming coated over with it. He says you keep yourself unspotted from the world. I've heard this illustration, I don't know, many years ago, and I've forgotten it. Maybe Grandpa Tyler was the person who used it, and he was, he won't give me a bargain. Uh, a little girl, back in the days when the mother had to starch the little white dresses, and they, oh, you know how they, they were, they, they stood out in so many layers of them. She got ready, and uh, was getting ready to go to church on Sunday morning, and she was out on the porch, and she was, you know how little girls are, and she was looking down through there, and the mom said, don't you get out there in the yard, or don't you get out there uh, on the wall you'll get your dress dirty. Well, she was pressing around like little girls will. And she got out on the wall. She went out toward the wall a little bit. She looked back toward the house. She was driving. And she had got the mud and everything, which was fine. And then here came a car along and splash. And mud went all over that dress. Just She didn't get out and water the mud. She didn't get out and sit down in it. You know what happened? She just got too close to it. She got just too close to the butthole. Somebody came splashing on That's a lesson of that. We're to, not, we're to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. And one way to do that is to keep yourself back away from it far enough that it's not going to splash on you. So he said you keep yourself purified. You keep yourself unspotted from the world. And in doing that, we've We'll be a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And we'll be a people who are fit for heaven. Because in Revelation 21, in the last verse, it says they're not entering into it anything that evolves. Whatever makes a liar, abomination, and so on. So we are a purified people. Keep ourselves pure. Keep ourselves fit for heaven. Then, lastly, we are the Lord's own zealous people. Look at verse 14 again. Purified himself for himself, his own special people, zealous of good work. 
zealous of good works. Now, zeal is a wonderful thing. The zeal has to be tempered by good. It has to be tempered by good works. It has to be tempered by knowledge. Uh, in Romans, the 10th chapter, in 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says his heart desire and prayer to God for Israel is they might be saved. But he said, I bear them record they have a zeal of God. But not according to knowledge. They've been ignorant of God's righteousness, not about to establish their own righteousness, and have not committed themselves to the righteousness of God. Now he says they have a zeal of God, but it's not according to knowledge. Now zeal is a wonderful thing, and we, God's people must have that zeal. But that zeal must be controlled by knowledge so that it will be zealous. They will be zealous of good rather than bad. Zealous of good works. You know, there are a lot of people who are fanatically zealous for unrighteous cause. Turn turn your uh, TV on any night for the news. And you see over in the Middle East there are religious people blowing up religious people all over the place over there. They're zealous all right enough. But it's not according to knowledge. Now, we are to be a people who are zealous, but we keep our zeal in check with knowledge. So it will be good work. I've sometimes said, uh, pumping up zeal and pumping up enthusiasm and zeal in a people without giving them the knowledge necessary to control that zeal is so dangerous. Because it's just like giving a person an automobile then disconnecting the brakes and throwing away the steering wheel and letting them go. Now, it's good to pump folks up for knowledge. I'm not, I'm not for knowledge, but for zeal. And it's good to build up enthusiasm and to whip up that in, in a people. But make sure when you're doing it, that is tempered by knowledge. And make sure it's tempered by the Word of God. So it will be zeal for good work. We are created in Christ Jesus as His own special people and redeemed. To be a zealous people, but be zealous of good works. And of course, the only way we know what, what works are good works is through the guidance of the Scriptures that furnish us unto every good work. And we're to zealously be engaged in the work of worship and service unto God, not forsaking the assembling ourselves together as the manner of some is, Hebrews 10, verse 25. We're to zealously do our part in the uh, body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 16 where each one does his share in the body. And individually on a day-to-day basis we are to zealously pursue every good work. Galatians 6 and 10 We will therefore have opportunity to let us do good unto all men. But we are created for good works. We are redeemed for those good works and we be zealous of those good works. Now it's a pity that those of us who have that knowledge, if we, and assuming that we do, that we have that knowledge of what the Lord would have us to do, that we don't have more zeal for it than we do. We need that zeal. We need it stirred. We need it cultivated. We need it pushed. We need to be more zealous for doing the Lord's will. So, on the one hand, we don't want to just whip up enthusiasm for enthusiasm's sake. But on the other hand, we do want to create all the enthusiasm we can for doing the will of the Lord, doing what God saved us to do. Because we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are redeemed from all iniquity in order that we might be zealous 
of good works. Now really the question tonight is, do you want to be one of God's own special people? Are you one of them? If you're not, don't you want to be? And the only way that you can be is through the blood of Christ. Through being redeemed by His precious blood. And the only way that you can do that is through obedience to the truth. Do you remember the Bible tells us that He shed His blood for the remission of sins? This is my blood of the New Testament which He shed for many for the remission of sins. Matthew 26, 28. But we cannot appropriate that blood to our lives until we have obeyed the gospel. And in Acts 2 and verse 38, he says, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. He said the blood is for the remission of sin. He said baptism is for the remission of sin. And when you put the two of them together, we understand that we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have the remission of sin when we're baptized for the remission of those sins. Revelation 1 and verse 5 said we were washed from our sins in his own blood. But in Acts 22 and verse 16, Saul of Tarsus was told to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So we're washed by His blood, yet He says you're baptized in order to wash away your sins. We conclude from that again that our sins are washed away in His blood when we're baptized. When that happens, we're redeemed. We are one of God's own special people. We are people who are redeemed from all iniquity in order that we might be zealous for good works doing the will and the law of the Lord. Maybe you're here tonight and you haven't done that. You have an opportunity to do so as we stand together and sing, you may come.